Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, and streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. If you'd like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. I'd love to hear from you. And just a reminder, this show's sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. So if you'd like to find out more about how to make your writing better, imaginativestorm.com is the place to look. Today I'm re-airing a show featuring Buddy Ray McNeese, and the reason I'm excited about offering this show to you is because Buddy Ray McNeese is a slam poet, a page poet, a singer-songwriter, and one of the original contributors to the poetry slam which started many years ago in the early 90s. And I was traveling at the time in the early 90s with Alan Wolf, and he and I were in Natick, Massachusetts, and a woman named Suzanne told us about two poets performing at a place called T.T. and the Bears in Cambridge, Buddy Ray McNeese and Patricia Smith. And Suzanne said if we really wanted to see performance poets in action, the best in the country, we should go to T.T. and the Bears and take a look. So the next day, Alan and I hopped on the train and we went down to T.T. and the Bears and sure enough, and sure enough, after a few somewhat boring poets droning along on stage, we got to see Buddy Ray McNeese and Patricia Smith close the show. And Buddy Ray started and Patricia closed it and they were both magnificent. Alan and I thought we were good, but we had no idea what good was till we saw those two. And afterwards, Alan and I rushed down and introduced ourselves and Buddy Ray and Patricia said, let's go out, have a coffee, let's go out and have a beer. So out we went. And that's when we got to know both Buddy Ray and Patricia. We eventually, not too long thereafter, actually hired Buddy Ray McNeese to join the Poetry Alive group, which was what Alan and I were involved in during that time. And we, we wanted Patricia to do it, but she couldn't because she was working for the Boston Globe. That said, Patricia Smith came to Asheville a whole lot during the early 90s and helped form the Asheville poetry scene. A lot of history there, my friends. So here's the interview I did with Buddy Ray McNeese. We recorded this in Cleveland many years later. And I start by asking Buddy Ray just to tell uh, us his memories of that night we met. So here he is. Please welcome Buddy Ray McNeese. That night, actually, it was part of the Stone Soup poetry group that was founded by Jack Powers, which was the longest running poetry extravaganza in Boston. Uh, Jack's sadly gone now, but he was uh, a beat poet, a street poet, and uh, he provided Patricia and I with the space to start a poetry slam in Boston. I had been introduced to the Poetry Slam uh, probably a year or two earlier. Well, actually, it was, no, it was in 1987. Uh, Mark Smith enjoined me to start a slam, and Patricia had moved to Boston from Chicago, where she was kind of the queen of the slam, and 
we started uh, the slam as kind of a after performance from the open mic at Stone Soup. That's how it came to be. And it was a it was a great club, uh, music club mostly. But on Monday nights, they would have a uh, have poetry. So that night precipitated me even moving around more through the country because Alan signed me up on the spot afterwards to um, start working for Poetry Alive. And I think I may have left within like days of that. Because I remember shortly after that, Alan and I were sharing a hotel room. This was back when Poetry Live made us stay in the same room <laughs> uh, up in New Hampshire. So um, it was also the night um, that, uh, as you reminded me, that the Gulf War started. And it was also the night that my one-man show, which had been uh, filmed by PBS and produced by WGBH in Boston, called Dis Voices from the Shelter, it was the night that show was to premiere on PBS and because the war started that night, it got bumped. It might be worth mentioning for those of you in the audience who might not know the reference, the Gulf War. That was the, <laughs> that was the first Gulf War, which was 1991. And the reference to Mark Smith is the reference to the man who founded the, the Poetry Slam back in the late 80s. Yeah. Or I think it was 1984. Um, yeah, he started it, it might have been 84, 85 at a place called Get Me High Lounge in Chicago. By the time I met him, he had moved the show over to where it now resides, uh, the Green Mill, which is a legendary mobster hangout from the from the 20s, I believe, uh, in a jazz club. I, the first time I, I was in Chicago um, performing my one-man show in Wrigleyville, at a black box theater in a basement. Again, it was the kind of serendipity that someone in the audience said, oh, this, your stuff is really great. You should go to the Green Mill and see the Poetry Slam. So I went, and the first time I performed at the Green Mill uh, was that week I was performing this one-man show. The first slam I ever did, I took the microphone off the stage because I was a stage performer. I was used to not using a microphone. And uh, Mark Smith, as, as he will do, kind of cajoled me from the sidelines. But at any rate, I, I won the first slam that I ever participated in. And afterwards, uh, Mark said, you know, hey, would you like to maybe start a chapter of this elsewhere? And I said, well, yeah, sure. And it just so happened that it coincided with Pat Smith, who got a job at the Boston Globe, moving out to Boston. At the time, she was married to Mike Brown. He was to come about a year after that. So in the interim, she and I started the Poetry Slam in Boston, which I believe was the fourth Poetry Slam. There was Chicago, Ann Arbor, San Francisco. Gary Glazner started that one. Steve Marsh, I believe, started the one in Ann Arbor. And we were the fourth Poetry Slam. So what you walked into was the first couple books of the of the Bible of Poetry Slam. <laughs> you came into that scene. A lot of performance poets accrued around that scene there at the, the Stone Soup Poetry Collective. Danny Solis first uh, started slamming. And a lot of people who were not performance poets came into performance through the slam, which is something different than myself. I mean, I came at it from theater and from performance art. We didn't call it performance poetry then. We call it performance art because I was here in Cleveland. I was trying to find a venue for what I was doing. And theater seemed the most comfortable place and the, the most accessible place for to get what I was doing out because I'm not an I was not an academic poet. I, I left graduate school because I didn't like the politics and I didn't like the kind of stultifying atmosphere. It wasn't the kind of poetry that I wanted to do and that I was writing. My stuff was more in the tradition of Cleveland's own Langston Hughes, somebody that's sitting on the stoop, got his ears open, and is kind of writing down what he hears around him. Or Carl Sandburg, those kind of more populist-type poets. I didn't want to write academic poetry. I was starting to be trained in that discipline, and 
it wasn't my cup of mud. So I really started coming into my own in Boston. Later on in 1992, it was shortly after I met you that the Boston team of which I was a member won the National Poetry Slam Championship. Well, I remember that because that was the first year we from Asheville had formed a team. And Alan Wolf and I were on the team, and we had one other fellow, and I can't remember what his name was. And we were representing... It wasn't Pat Storm, though. It was not Pat Storm. We were representing Asheville. That was the first time we had ever done that. That night, after we met you, Alan and I were so thrilled with the idea of the Poetry Slam, Alan Wolf said, I'm going to start one in Asheville. And so he came to Asheville and started one within a short period of time after we met you. I think by the fall of 91, we had the Poetry Slam up and running. And by the time spring of 92 rolled around, the green door right. in Asheville, by the time 92 rolled around, we had picked a Poetry Slam team and off we went to Boston. And that's when we watched you and Patricia Smith and a two other people on the Boston team win the Nationals. And I think there were 28 teams by then, or maybe not, maybe 12. I don't think there were 28. I think it was still under 20. I, I could be wrong. I don't know. I'm not like the slam historian. I mean, I've had a, my disagreements with the whole slam format. Patricia Smith actually was not on the team. She competed as an individual. Okay. Um, on the team was Richard Cambridge, uh, myself, Benson Wheeler, after that, um, and I'm working with Poetry Alive, and, and by the way, props to, to you and Bob Falls for starting Poetry Alive, and you had another guy with you in the beginning. Cal Grosius. Yeah, Cal Grosius. Um, because it was, a, it was a synergy that kind of everything was performance poetry as a performing art really had a lot of synchronicity around the country at the same time. There was something in the air that was uh, part of it. And a lot of, at first, a lot of poetry slammers ended up working with Poetry Alive. However, after Bob discerned how disreputable most of us were, uh, that they, they started hiring actors. Uh, the, the, there's some legendary stories about that. But what I'm getting at is that there was this groundswell of poetic energy in the country at that time. And it really, it, and it's become huge now. I mean, the Poetry Slam has become huge. I've parted ways with it for the most part and now they have to have regional qualifiers in order to get the 75 teams or whatever it is that participated in it. I'd like to just go back for a moment to those early days in Poetry Alive when you first came to be part of it with us. One of the reasons we hired the poets, the performance poets, the slam poets, to come be with us, we couldn't find anybody else who had the savvy, the stage skill, the wherewithal, road sense, go out and be on their own and pull the kind of energy that needed to be pulled to make those shows work. Later, Poetry Live did train actors, but in that, those early days, I don't think we could have done it with actors because they didn't have the road sense, nor did we have the road experience. Uh, quite possibly. You and I and several of the early performance poets, I mean, we laid down a lot of railroad that a lot of people are riding on now, where we would precipitate these experiences for people and then they would duplicate them, you know. So, you know, we all had a hand in those early days of creating this phenomenon, such as it is. Um, I, I always kind of uh, had a little problem with the competitive aspect of it, mostly from an aesthetic point of view, because what would happen is, is that people would see and hear what would win 
the slams, and then they would duplicate that style. In the initial days of the Poetry Slam, there were a whole plethora of range of different styles that really spoke to the possibilities of poetry. And then it became almost like a sonnet in that the form, because it's a three-minute form, it got narrowed down into, uh, if you put them on a sound graph, they all started to look the same. They all started to have the same rising action, declination. It, it got like the same hammer hitting the same nail over and over again uh, after a while, which is probably because capitalism being what it is, you know, people wanted to win. There has to be winners in it. And, and so people weren't, uh, were not trying different things aesthetically, uh, artistically. They were not doing things that they did initially where there would be nature poetry or short poems or, you know, everything was colored to the edges of the page and, and, and turn, the volume was turned up to 10 and that's, it became kind of stereotypical rants, you know, and, and that's where it kind of started to lose it for me. That there, And because I came out of performance, I saw that there were a lot more dynamics in, you know, poetry performed than, than just a three-minute form. Although it's been great for poetry in some ways, I also think that it's it's almost become its own cliche. I mean, people ask me to coach teams and participate in it, and, and, I, and I tend to do that because I want to help young poets. I think part of the what Mark always advocated was help the next guy up, the next gal up. I think that's true, that we need to kind of keep hel helping each other along. You said that in the early days we laid down some tracks. Yeah. What were some of those tracks, in your opinion? Gary Snyder said in the spiritual loneliness in the 1950s, you'd travel, you know, a thousand miles to find a poetry reading. Well, what we were doing is we were shortening the distances between those readings so that you actually, and I was one of the first people to do this, you could actually tour and make a modicum of existence by touring. And so we would go to these places and um, that were poetry readings and we'd say, you know, hey, I'm going to do a set and, you know, I've got books and CDs or well, actually then it was cassette tapes, you know. It got a lot easier. For instance, in Chicago, you could do at one point in, in the Wicker Park neighborhood, you could do a gig almost every night at a different venue. And so I would go to Chicago for a week and, and make, in those days, which was probably a lot of money, you know, maybe a thousand bucks in a week. You know, it's still a lot of money actually for a poet. Like I said, it started to get a little out of hand and, and now it's kind of shrunk back down as far as venues go. But there weren't the opportunities and I think we helped create the opportunities for, for other people who were doing what we were doing. I would have liked to have seen it gone in the direction of more of, of a theatrical direction, more um, ensemble work than, than solo work. Because what happened was people would do sets, but they were all slam poems. They were all three-minute slam poems. So that got boring to me, too. I think as an artist, boredom is your, your friend because you, you get bored with a form and you, you know, move on to another form. And I was one of the first people, and apparently they have done this now, to advocate for different time limits so that you get a different kind of poem. Like, let's do a let's do a, a one-minute poem, a two-minute poem, and a three-minute poem, and a five-minute poem. You know, let's let's change it up because it's it's getting rote. So let's let's do something different that will explore d different areas of poetry, keep the audience more engaged rather than this, this form. I remember we spent a fair amount of time in Poetry Alive working on what we call scripted poems, which later came to be known as team pieces. Yeah, yeah. And I've often thought that what the work we did in Poetry Alive, scripting those poems, ended up being copied in the slam with the team pieces. I don't know if that's true or not. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Because we were there at the, the beginning of it and in the, in the lead in many cases that people were learning from us and they were learning what we did. And yeah, they were they were adapting that to their 
form into the, what they were doing. It's still a three-minute form. I mean, it was still a three-minute form. Group pieces added a whole different dynamic of it. And in fact, in Boston in 92, group pieces started to kind of take shape. The San Francisco team, I think every one of their pieces was a group piece. I don't think they had any solo pieces. That was Gary Glazner, really brilliant guy that is now working with all, the Alzheimer's Project, started his own thing, working with elderly people, using poetry, and just a great guy, and really one of the, the great innovators and thinkers of, of the early performance poetry movement. The slam wasn't his first introduction to performance poetry. He was doing performance art-type stuff, because San Francisco was one of the hotbeds of that, as was Cleveland. We had the Performance Art Festival here starting in the early 80s. So that's kind of where I, like, again, where I came into it is, is more of a theatrical approach. Yeah, and, you know, I remember when I became involved with Poetry Alive, our, our idea was to create theatrical presentations of poems in the same way that storytellers would tell stories. Right. And I wasn't coming at it from an actor's point of view. I was coming at it more from a point of view of somebody who would just like to be on stage and didn't quite know how to do it, so I thought I would experiment with it. Yeah. And it worked out because the poems taught me more than I could have learned anywhere else. Well, and I think, you know, Poetry because it came out of Asheville and Appalachia and because it was so close to the uh, storytelling tradition and the, the storytelling festival in, what was it, Johnson City... Jonesboro. Jonesboro, yeah. There was an element of that in it. And narrative is one of the hallmarks of performance poetry and slam poetry, for that matter. It's something that has a through line and narrative that people can follow because it's not the kind of academic poetry that's going to, you're going to have to run scurry to a thesaurus and scratch your head trying to figure, you don't need a PhD to figure out what's going on in the poem. I was wondering if you might offer us a piece of work that you have. Oh, yeah. Yeah, what would you like to hear? Well, we've been talking about prose and talking about performance poetry and talking about how you would like to move away from the three-minute form. So do you have something that would be a sample of, of where you are right now? Well, let me think. Right, so probably this is appropriate because I've been kind of complaining about the lack of sunlight here in Cleveland, and it, it is notorious. I mean, we were sitting at the cafe earlier because I, I wanted to be in the light. I wanted to be in the sunlight because I looked at the weather forecast and we're, we're heading into a period where it's going to be gray for the next eight to 10 days and probably beyond. There can be, uh, in the winter here, you can go three weeks without seeing the sun. It's just the lake effect. It's, it's where we're sitting in the world. The only place that gets less sunlight is Seattle, Washington. But ours is very much seasonal. It really depends on the lake effect. So we, we just get these gray lids that kind of settle over the Cleveland area, northeastern Ohio. I thought it was me when I was growing up. I thought I was just depressed, you know, that I was depressive. And then and when I finally moved away from here, I realized it wasn't me. It was the weather. However, um, as many times as I've left here and I've traveled the wide world over, I've, I've toured in uh, Russia and Italy a couple times with Lawrence Ferlinghetti in Russia with Yevtushenko. I've taught in Singapore. I was in uh, Asia for a while. I've, I've been to, I've at much like yourself, probably because of Poetry Live. I've performed in every state except Alaska. But I keep coming back here. Why? Uh, maybe this poem will it, help you understand that. It's called Love Song for Cleveland. Rusty guitar strings plucked by worn-down, grimy-ridged factory fingers greasy with city chicken. Pluck out this tune. Chugging up from Alabama red clay days and white sheet nights, don't forget. 
clicking into a freeway rockabilly, go man go, up that hillbilly highway, Route 77, crashing beat on North Collinwood back porch, right here in this neighborhood. My old man blowing summer harmonica breeze, spitting gritty soot from the flats washed down with fruit jar shine and a cold bottle of POC. This love song for Cleveland could easily be his blues. The same Labor Day off breeze carries polka from Rahar's Hole, Campobasso lullabies cascading down Murray Hill, Shadow of the Steel Mill Bohunk waltzes. All those tunes fugued together and spreading out over the carp-back burnished sunset over Lake Erie. The gloaming pierced by the eerie yowls of panthers that once lurked through the forest city when there was still a forest here. Just the other side of I-90, those train tracks, old game trail that the Erie people followed to the swampy mouth of the Cuyahoga. Can you hear their campfire hunting chants? Can you hear the brandy-fueled, fiddling, wheeling songs of Lorenzo Carter, the original inhabitant? This love song for Cleveland could easily be his blues and those old Indian chant blues blasted by a 1950 iron ore freighter coming around Collision Bendway, scattering the seagulls off the swinging bridges, the singing bridges, to reveal Cleveland's pot of gold, rusty iron ore pellets from the Masabi Range. Steel, steel melted down into steel that built this city, that built the world, from safety pins to I-beams to the very hull of the freighter it came in on. This love song for Cleveland could easily be those old steel mill working blues. The bowling ball trophy glowing over the lacquered surface of the bar. There are old worn creased faces croaking out a tune. Or carrying the bagpipes on the March cold wind down Euclid Avenue, past East 55th Street, picking up a wrap there, carrying it all the way to Severance Hall, where Warsaw Ghetto Kaddish is pulled slowly on the cello. It wends its way up Murray Hill to an Irish immigrant jazz club where a Polish clarinetist from Parma plays Duke Ellington's single petal of a rose. This love song for Cleveland could easily be those blues. Rolling down, back down Murray Hill, where old paisans strum mandolins as mournfully beautiful as the Virgin Mary paraded through the Feast of the Assumption, pinned with dollar bills, and it keeps on rolling down all the way down to Euclid Beach Park, where my parents first met and danced under the, on the pavilion to Big Band Swing. This love song for Cleveland could easily be those blues, spreading out over the carp-back burnished sunset of Lake Erie, just as a wall of clouds comes sliding back in. The thousand shades of gray that pall all over Cleveland from November until May. The drone of a thousand steel cellos. This love song for Cleveland could easily be those blues. So gray, so gray, it's got to be the blues. I'm talking the gray of an aluminum shovel that sits by the back porch door with the curled up edges all year long the gray of a crushed beer can thrown in the worn-down hedges after some late-night Cleveland Indians flop out on the West Coast. 
the gray of a shadkill on Edgewater Beach, the gray of the coal bin on Train Street in Tremont, the gray of a 55-gallon drum of rainwater on back of a pickup truck with four flat tires next to a corrugated steel warehouse on Potholed Waterloo Avenue, that kind of gray. I'm talking the gray when you're driving down the shoreway, you can't tell the difference between the road, the lake, and the sky. If Picasso had a gray period, Cleveland would be it. This love song, so gray, so gray, it's gotta be the blues. I'm talking the gray whirl of pigeons in public square, the gray of the frost on the lawns of Shaker Heights, the gray mustache of the babushkas of Slavic Village, the gray beard of Daniel Thompson haranguing the specter of Rockefeller in Lakeview Cemetery. All those hues, all those penumbras that bring me home. The gray of the last stack of the last plant rising up like the ghosts of all those old mill workers. And though there is no sun, there's a burning river running through my rusty heart. There's a burning river running through my rusty heart. This love song for Cleveland could easily be those blues. So gray, so gray, gotta be the blues. Love song for Cleveland. Thank you, buddy Ray McNeese. From the very bowels of Cleveland. Um, yeah, that that's uh, I usually do that with the band, so we do a little jazz or a blues shuffle riff with that, and um, that I've been working a lot with the band over the last few years. Um, not only writing songs and singing them, I play guitar. I got great musicians behind me, and we do stuff like that. And we do it uh, until recently when the Barking Spider, which is a, is a great crossroads of creative minds, closed down. That was our our home bar, and we would about once a month we would perform in there and uh, encourage uh, other musicians and poets to come and sit in and jam. It's called, the band's name is Tongue and Groove, and so we would just have like a jam, and people would get up and do anything. I, it, was, it was a show. I mean, that was really what I wanted to have. I liked the idea of a show, and I liked the idea of mixing it up. So there would be, someone would read, read a short story, read a vignette from a short story, someone would do a monologue, someone would do a poem, someone would sing a song, and they were in, encouraged to have the band join them in. I had good musicians that could, you know, if you want Russian car chase music, they could do it. You know, you, you want funky polka, they could try it. Give them the tempo and what you're looking for mood-wise. And sometimes it worked spectacularly, sometimes it went off the rails, and I guaranteed in every show there would be a train wreck, and there, there always was. And But when we had train wrecks, they were glorious. <laughs> you know, It was really a good experience. And that's what I've put my energy into in these latter days. I'm not touring as much anymore, so I'm doing more of that, and I'm getting ready to act in a show. I still like doing that every few years. As I was mentioning before, I love the idea of getting together with a group of people and putting on a show, and, and the kind of family you develop through that process and the, the journey that you all go on together. It's, it's an amazing process. There's part of me that's the, the solitary poet up here in the garret staring out at the snow-covered roof writing, but there's a part of me that loves working with a band, loves being out in front of the band, being a showman, loves being on stage with a group of actors and portraying a character, and, and that's what I'm doing. And to make a living, I'm uh, teaching, which is what most poets end up doing. I'm actually, as much as I have lambasted academia, I'm actually in academia now at John Carroll University. I've been doing that for about five, six years now. 
So one of the things I love about getting together with my old poet friends, whom I've known a long time, I've often had the opportunity to sit in places like this. This little studio where you write in the upstairs part of your house in Cleveland. And when I ask you to perform this poem, Love Song for Cleveland, you hesitated for a moment thinking, oh, I, I'm going to perform it. And then, then you settled into to remembering it. And you settled into just having this moment without any effort and offering a piece that was lively and that was on your emotional tone at the moment. So for those of you out there thinking about how to present your own work, one of the things I think is really important is to just relax into what you're doing rather than try to present something for other people to be impressed with. And I would just like to ask you to talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, it, it, as it says in the Bible, the word made flesh. My grandma always said, when you memorize a poem, it'll live with you the rest of your life. And it will be there in times of need. I guarantee that people write poems in those moments when they really cannot find the other language to approximate their feelings. Language has become who I am. I mean, there's poetry in me on a cellular level, you know. It informs the way I look at the world. It's all speaking to me. It's all talking to me in its own language. That tree, that roof, the clouds, they all have their own linguistic registers that are coming in on me. I mean, I see the world in those terms. I see it in visual terms, too, but the visual quickly becomes the language for me. You know, that's, that's just my blind way of feel, finding my way through the world and feeling around through the world. So I think that the more you memorize, the more you can do it. I know you've got, you know, probably hundreds of poems, as do I. I mean, I, frat, we were just banding about Dylan Thomas. You know, we, we all have those poems that we learned when we were younger that still live with us, kind of touchstones that we come back to that, that, that mean so much to us and that can be summoned up when we trying to find emotional equilibrium in, in the way that language can balance us out, in the way that mm -hmm. language can make meaning for us. You know, there was a time when I was on the road when I was performing. To give me time and caffeine enough, I could probably do a couple hundred poems at the drop of a hat. I, I don't have that as much anymore because I'm more sedentary. I'm not touring as much, and I'm, I'm actually doing more writing. And also, it, it's like a muscle. You, you don't use it. You kind of lose it. I'm not as fluent with my own work as I once was. I know that it would come back if I just sharpened it up a little bit by, mm -hmm. by doing working out, so to speak, you know. And I'm I'm about to do that because I'm about to I've got a pretty good part in this play and I open up the whole play and I've got like a five minute monologue. Curtains comes up, me on the stage for five minutes, you know. Right. So I've got I've got to get I better sharpen it up here pretty you, quick, you, you know. Well people often ask me how many poems I've memorized and I'll say, Oh, I've memorized over six hundred. And they go, wow. And then I say, well, the real question to ask is, how many have I forgotten? Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. And and you do, you're right. You do forget most of them. It drifts away unless you use unless you use the muscle. Wanted to turn this just a little bit in the direction of your international travels. And I know you worked with the Russian poet Yevgeny Yevtushenko. And so often in our world, especially people who first discover the poetry slam and the poetry readings. They think they've discovered something brand new, <laughs> and they think that somehow here in America, we invented performance poetry. We have helped form it. Yes. I don't think we invented it. I know Yevgeny Yevtushenko didn't invent it, but that guy could stand in front of 10,000 people and did during the 
reign of Stalin and present his poems to ears hungry to hear. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a great experience being with him to see that process. I toured with him for three weeks, and we would go to these old uh, socialist workers' palaces, which were performance centers, and they were all kind of chock-a-block-type places. When we would go and he would perform, and I was lucky because he translated some of my poems, so I got to perform right after him, and, and in fact, share the stage with him in some cases because he would recite my poems in Russian. He never did the same poem the same way twice. This is one of the problems of the slam is that they just put it on autopilot and they just they, they know that they're going to hit their marks at such and such a place. It really was dependent on the mood that he was in when he was performing. He found different colors and different parts of the poem that based upon his internal climate. That was the one thing. The other thing was that he would be reciting a poem and he would stop and the audience would finish the poem. The audience knew his poems by heart and they would finish the poem. And then he would might join them in for the last couple lines or something like that. And this was an older generation. I don't think that's there now with consumer culture being what it is. I think they're more influenced by contemporary forms and things like that. But at the time, you know, it was it was an amazing experience to see that happening. And much in the same way that we then learned our chops through Poetry Live and, and doing three shows a day and driving to the next town and doing five shows and workshops and, I mean, doing that, you know, ad infinitum. He had a partner and they would travel around to factories. On lunch breaks, they would do sports poems that they wrote about legendary Russian soccer, hockey players, and they would compose these poems and they would go on lunch breaks to these factories. And he drove all over Russia doing this. I was like, wow, that's just like Poetry Alive. And Poetry Alive in those days let us do our own material too. Yevtushenko could not have happened had not Khrushchev happened. When Khrushchev criticized Stalin, when it first happened on radio and television, everybody was like, you know, pulled their breath in and thought, oh my God, this guy's going to Siberia. But when nothing happened, uh, they realized, hey, it's okay to criticize Stalin. <laughs> and, and so that allowed Yevtushenko to write a poem like Baba Yar. At first, what was happening was they were doing a lot of their poetry under the radar. They were mimeographing the stuff and they were passing in basements and they were passing it around like that. It got so popular. What they were saying was so true because the irony of, of the Russia at the time, which is kind of what's happening with mass media in this country, is that you know, the, the name of the main paper was Pravda, which means truth, which was the big joke because everybody in Russia knew that there was no truth in Pravda, that, that much like in the media today, it's fake news. You don't know what, you know. And so the real news that was being transmitted was these little Xerox things that they were, that him and Vazaznesky and, and, and Akhmadulina, who was his wife at the time, um, they were doing this stuff in basements. And it got so popular that by the thaw, when things had really opened up in Russia, by that period, they were reading in soccer stadiums for tens of thousands of people. And people knew the poems because they had been circulated underground for so long. Yeah, yeah, it's true, you have to check out a job doing sports poems, but he, meanwhile, he was writing the poems that he really wanted to write, but he just wasn't saying it because there was a climate of fear, and you know, you didn't know if you said something the wrong thing. And his family had been sent to Russia. He's actually originally Ukrainian, his family were part of the Decembrists in the 1820s, and they were sent to Siberia, which is where he was born in Zima Junction. We went back when they opened up his ancestral home as a museum, as a writer's retreat. So I had these great experiences being there when the, his home was opened up as a museum. And then we went to 
Bratz Station, which was a hydroelectric plant. I mean, you know, in those days, he was being commissioned by the Soviets to, to write encomiums to hydroelectric plants. You know? So it might be worth <laughs> noting for those of you out there listening to this conversation, Khrushchev was a premier of Russia, and he was one of many who came along. Stalin, however, was the longest reigning premier of Russia, and he came to power after Lenin, the original founder of one of the original founders of the Soviet Union, uh, died. And Stalin remained in power from the time he took over until the time he died. And I'm not sure what date that was. I think that was sometime in the 60s. So this time late frame, 50s. late 50s, this time frame we're talking about is that time frame in the, after World War II in the 50s and the 60s when Stalin was in full power and the poets in Russia were tiered. Some of them were really radical poets who wrote and got in a lot of trouble and there were the mid-level poets who like Yevgeny Yevtushenko, who wrote and worked for the state, but also wrote underneath well, as well. Well, I, I mean, a lot of the poets were disappeared, you know. I mean, the, the ones that were critical of the government were disappeared. Stalin famously said, one person dead is a, is a tragedy, 30 million is a statistic, you know. And, and you did not speak out. I was compared to Mayakovsky, which I thought was a great honor when I was there. They, they called me the American Mayakovsky. Mayakovsky was a working man's poet. He was a working class poet. And there's one thing about Russia, I don't know if it's the same now, but when I was there, there were, there were statues of poets everywhere, which we don't have. We have the Walt Whitman truck stop on the Jersey Pike or whatever. In Moscow in particular, you get every other block has a, a bust of a, a poet, Gogol or Pushkin, or particularly Pushkin is their you know national poet. He was basically their Whitman. We, I had so many great experiences there. We, uh, he lived in an uh, apartment in Moscow, and he had a place in Paradunklano, which was like an artist enclave that Khrushchev started. And we would go to Pasternak's house on Sunday, um, which is what Yevtushenko always did. Pasternak was his mentor. We also went to Pasternak's grave, which is where a lot of writers would meet so that they could talk about things without the KGB finding out about it. Until actually the KGB actually put a microphone on Pasternak's grave. So then you knew that they were listening, so you would feed them misinformation. So all this stuff I got, you know, right from Yevtushenko, which was kind of cool. So we go to Pasternak's house, and Pasternak's granddaughter still lives there, and to drink Georgian wine, which is what he would do on a Sunday. We walked a mile away from where his little dacha, there, these dacha is like a little summer home or cottage, and we, we went to Pasternak's house, and Pasternak wrote, standing up. He wrote Dr. Zhivago standing up. He didn't sit at a desk. He wrote standing up. So I got a chance to stand at his desk and, you know, write a little something. And I walked by one room and, and there was a piano. And I said, oh, is that Pasternak's piano? And Yevtushenko says, it's Rachmaninoff's piano. <laughs> you know? So we, we, you know, it was just those kind of experiences that I had while I was over there that connected me to this international community. And was, like you said, I mean, the we're walking in the footsteps of endless other poets. You know, they're, we're standing on the whole shoulders of giants, all the cliches. It, it, he would tell me stories about Chagall, about, you know, Picasso. And he went to Picasso's atelier in Paris and as a young poet. And Picasso said, you can take any painting you want. And Yevtushenko said, you know, I was looking through them, looking through them. And I said, I don't want any. And, and, and then he turns to me and he says, can you believe I said that to Picasso? <laughs> But as it was in his dacha on the wall, there would be, you know, there'd be a Chagall and there would be a Picasso. I mean, he met, he knew all these people, you know, he met all these people. So, it, you know, that was also really a, a window into the world that I always 
imagine myself to be in anyways as an artist that I when I was composing and writing and when I was participating, I, you know, that was the world that I, I aspired to was that kind of great art. That's what I was after to in some way or find myself um, creating art of that nature, of that stature, something that that was profound and lasting, not something that was I'm just doing this for money or to win the slam or to get a book deal or though they didn't care about that they you know until they made it big they were they were impoverished many of them the stories are legendary that was nice to be a part of that world and also to get drunk with the premier of siberia and (laughs) throw our glasses into the fire and uh, everybody gets their own individual bottle of vodka as we were touring we'd go to these different cities and they'd have this on this huge table and I had a translator with me at all times, this Georgian scholar, really nice guy, funny, funny guy, funny guy. And uh, I was like, why, why do we all have a bottle of vodka? And he goes, you'll see. What they do in, at these informal literary dinners is they praise each other and they toast each other. In Russia, you praise the other people like, oh, Yevgeny, you are, Zenya was his nickname, you are the greatest poet of all time, your epic poem, but, you know, and they would go on, then you would toast him. And then no sooner did that person finish it, they would say, but no, you are the, you know. <laughs> and so you do this all night long. Food was awful. Gogol said there's two things about Russia that are constant, bad food and bad roads. And it's still true. <laughs> the food all seemed to come from the same place. Borscht for every meal, you know, and this kind of shoe leather like meat that was breaded and fried and with some kind of glutinous gravy on top of it. You don't go to Russia for the food. <laughs> you know? No, it was, a, it was a great window. And, uh, and I don't know that that exists anymore. I, everything now is mediated by the screen. And they don't have that extant oral tradition that they once had. I think it's been to their detriment. And I think it's been to the world's detriment that every our whole existence is mediated by a screen now. That we don't have that recall. We don't have that visceral connection with language anymore. It's Facebook, not face-to-face. You know, we just had this election, which was perhaps tilted by the fake news on the Facebook and the media and things like that. And that the reality has become this screen. So on the note of fake news, which we're all thinking about these days, and I even find myself wondering, is that piece of news I just read true or not? Or how do I discern that? What's the job of the poet today, of the artist, the writer? What do we do or what can we do to dig dig underneath that? You know, going back to Russia, the whole idea of Pravda, and they've always had a strong man, and this disinformation campaign that's been visited on us through Russian hackers. And so the whole idea is to confuse people to the point where they will not accept anything as, as news or truth. They think, ah, oh, it's all a pack of lies. That's a lie. That's a lie. Hey, what can you believe? Well, what a poet does is he says, let's take it down to the heart. Take it down to what do you think is really true? What in your human heart, not in your emotional mind that, that's going to pick sides and dis- distinguish and discriminate and what do you think is is true about this? And what what do you think as a human being? What do you think is the the truth of this? Obviously, we're finite beings in some ways. I think we have infinite connection to the universe. I would not have the hubris to think that my truth is the be all and end all of truth. However, my perspective on it carries a certain human truth. Bring it back down to what do you think, and what do you think in your heart is true? And that's I think what poetry can do and what language and what creative language can do is it's like I'm going to give you the particulars I'm going to give you some close-up personal perspective and you be the judge 
I mean, Pontius Pilate said, what is truth? I wash my hands of it. There's a lot of willful ignorance going on. There's a lot of ignorance, like ignorance, like I know that's happening, but I'm going to look away, ignore it, uh, willful ignorance. And there's a lot of um, ignorance that is just from people that get so confused by all this wash of media that they find themselves in, that they, they just throw up their hands and say, I, I don't know, I'm just, I'm, I don't know anymore. And, uh, you know, fear is kind of ruling the land. And for many people, feel, fear will be turned into two things, depression or hate or anger. And the angry ones, you can tell because they're the ones that are posting stuff on Facebook. I mean, that all comes out of fear, fear that somehow they're losing their grip. And I think that's where people that I know, that they would never say, oh, I'm not a racist. Yeah, well... You might want to look at that a little closer and find out really why you're basing your choices on these opinions. And, and have you researched these opinions? Have you researched this? Have you, have you looked into it deeper? That's the nature of writing and of poetry and art, visual art. And it's, it's, it looks at something more deeply and allows for shades of truth. It, it shows all the sides of it, all the perspectives of it. You know, bad art is dogma propaganda. And there's boatloads floating around now that is getting people to believe um, certain things about their fellow citizens and certain things about America and, and the world and reality. And poetry slows you down. It, it really makes you be thoughtful and, and look at things from a different perspective and, and, and feel things in a deeper way, not, not just reacting to them in an emotional way, really settling into it and, and experiencing it viscerally, you know, like I said, on a cellular kind of level. Do you have a piece of poetry you refer to often that informs the way you think? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> several. I mean, when you said that, I thought of a poem by D.H. Lawrence that uh, I really like called uh, We Are the Transmitters. We are the transmitters of life. And when we fail to transmit life, life fails to flow through us. That is part of the mystery of sex. Sexless people transmit nothing. Even if it is a woman making an apple dumpling or a man making a stool, good is the pudding if life goes into the pudding. Content is the woman with fresh life rippling through her. Give and it shall be given unto you is still the truth about life. But to give does not mean handing yourself over to some mean fool or letting the living dead eat you alive. To give is to kindle the life quality where it is not, even if it is in the whiteness of a washed pocket handkerchief. So at the end of the day, perhaps the job of the artist, the poet, is simply to give. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're just, obviously a poet's not doing it for the money, you know. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, kindling the life quality where it is not. The, the, the human touch that goes into your work. To not let the living dead eat you alive. Given it shall be given unto you is still the truth about life, but to give does not mean handing yourself over to some mean fool which I think, you know, as a country, we've kind of handed ourselves up to a lot of mean fools or letting the living dead eat you alive. I mean, there's a reason that the zombie movies are so popular as a genre now, because I think psychologically on a very deep level, you know, the zombies are, the zombie apocalypse is happening. The living dead are running amok. I think it's a kind of twisted thing, hence the popularity of these movies. It's Anne Frank saying, I still believe in the goodness of people. And, and the weight of six million people being killed by this hatred and this prejudice, that one sentence redeems humanity. Hard as it is, I mean, there's part of me that wants to be extremely Jonathan Swiftian, misanthropic, 
you know, individual people I love, humanity as a whole is monstrous. <laughs> Sometimes in, in my darker moments, I feel that way. And so, especially when you see the kind of things that are going on in this country right now, where there's just madness. <laughs> it's almost surreal how we've been taken over by this mindset that does not allow us to see the humanity of each other, that does not allow us to to sit down across from each other and dialogue in a rational, reasonable way and come to some kind of understanding together. And Elvis Costello, what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? Yeah, what is, what's so funny about that? You know, why, why should we not aspire to that? This country's been bathed in blood from its beginnings, and, and to this day it still is. We're the arm to the teeth in this country. You live away from this country and you come back into this culture after you've been gone for several months and you're like, oh my God, you know, the pace of life that we live at, the brutal pace of life, the, the kind of curt, abrupt way that we deal with each other that, and, the, and the, the way that we size each other up for exploitive reasons, that's a mindset. Luckily, I had people in my family that my grandma Zelma, you know, one of the great, great Wesleyan Methodist woman that taught me how to recite poetry, that... That, that taught me the basics of, of the teachings of Jesus Christ, you know. Those kind of people are unfortunately dying out. I think what's important for us as artists to alert people of that, you know, and, and make it known. And, and as we were discussing earlier, how do you do that? I mean, how, how, how can you use satire when it's, uh, people like Trump are impervious to it? It, it, doesn't, it has no effect. Irony is, is, doesn't have any effect anymore. You know, people are, have given in to, of the lie as a means to an end, or whatever. It don't matter. As long as we get, as long as we win, that's all that matters. Winning's not everything. It's the only thing. You know, and that's one of the things I had against the slam is that we, you know, we were, on the one hand, we were doing these great poems about, you know, brotherhood and, and rights and stuff like that. But people were stabbing each other in the back when they get off the stage, like, oh, that person sucks. Vote for me. You know, the cognitive dissonance of that really started to wear on me. This is, you know, this isn't the one with the most money at the end wins, you know, that kind of mentality. What is that? Let's use our art to build community and, and build something that doesn't mimic the capitalist model of winner-take-all. Let's find a different way. So at the end of the day, I completely agree with you. Let's find a different way, or let's find the way that's always been there, that's the way of the heart, more than the way of the aggression. I, I think we have that choice to make, and I think it's a choice that is, that's worth making. And we got to get choose. We got to get down to choosing. <laughs> if I can, my hillbilly come out. We better damn well start choosing. <laughs> you know, because uh, I I think that the time is drawing nigh. You know, the time is drawing nigh. I think that I've been reading Huxley a lot and the idea of antipodes and perspective and the fact that Bishop Barclay's idea of reality and, you know, because we're living in this reality TV show now. And of course, reality TV is a total construct. It's not real at all, you know. And now we're running the freaking country like a reality TV show and the government like a reality TV show. And, and I think that what we see, we create. And if we see burning buildings and cataclysm and apocalypse, that's what's going to manifest. Like I was looking at the downtown Cleveland. I was parked in a snow squall yesterday. I'm writing these Cleveland stories, these kind of prose poems about Cleveland with a photographer, a friend of mine, Tim Lachina. And I was looking at it and the and for a minute, the, the downtown was completely whited out, and all you could see was the shadows of the, the skyscrapers, which we don't have many. We have three, three. But they were like these gray sentinels, and I thought, this is a vision of what could be. You know, in 100 years, 
all this, where we're sitting now, Navi, I mean, it's all going to be a thin layer of detritus in the crust of the earth in 5,000 years. Plastic bags, as much as people say, oh, plastic's going to outlive us, it, it eventually will break down. And I, and I was looking at those buildings thinking, wow, you know, when I was in New York City several years ago, uh, when I was performing at the New Yorican, at any rate, I had a vision that night of these, these huge buildings engulfed in flames and blood shooting out of these buildings, out of the windows of these buildings, the Twin Towers. In retrospect, I'm thinking about that, going, oh my God, you know, and I'm looking at these downtown buildings down here. I'm not saying I'm a prophet or anything like that. It was weird, weird stuff happens when you're under the influence of that stuff. But we have a collective vision. Every, my perspective is but one perspective, but you put them all together. And so if you have everybody who has a hateful vision, a hateful perspective of like, this is the way the world is, it's dog eat dog, that will manifest. If that is your vision of reality, if that's what you see, and if that is also coming at you through these screens, that's what will manifest. We're, we're human beings and we reason and rational thought and some idealism has to come into play. You say, oh, well, it's always been that way. Humans are always that way. Well, yeah, but humans also have banded together and created societies and civilizations that had more or less kind of peaceful approaches to things. I don't know. I just wrote a poem. It talks about reality, the and survivors, and it goes into the history of the, you know, the Neanderthals had larger brain capacity than us. You know, they had a larger skull. You know, they had more brains, just like dolphins do, you know. In these Neanderthal sites, they have found examples where Cro-Magnon spear points. Our ancestors were killing the Neanderthals. They were competing for space. So not to let us off the hook, because there's, there are also examples of Cro-Magnon sites where there are examples of scalping. Cro-Magnon scalped one another. So, so that, that feeds the belief for a lot of people that, oh, well, human beings are just vicious, and that's just the way it is. But we also have wheelchair access ramp down there at this apartment building I'm looking at right now. There's a wheelchair access ramp down there. Now, the, you know, there wasn't one at the Parthenon, you know, <laughs> but there's one here. So maybe there's small little increments of progress where we're humanizing ourselves. I'd like to think that we're evolving, not devolving, as Devo right here from Akron, where you're from, that man was devolving. That's where they got their name, Devo, the de-evolution de of man, that we're maybe moving towards something that is more peaceful and, and a, a coexistence. Maybe this is the dark. It's always darkest before the black. You know, maybe we have to go through this. I don't know. I don't know, but I'm, I'm, I'm certainly voting for that. You know? <laughs> You know, the alternative is not a world that I want to live in. And there you go, my friends, my interview with Buddy Ray McNeese. And Buddy Ray's still currently active in the poetry scene. And in fact, he's the Poet Laureate of Cleveland Heights, Ohio, 20 through 2023. So thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations with listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, airing first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. You can always reach out to me, Nave, at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. We do appreciate it. And thank you, Robin Collier, for airing the show in Taos on Cultural Energy Radio, KCEI. And thank you ever so much for listening wherever you are in the world. I really do appreciate it. And I hope you come back sometime soon. And until then, 
I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.